Welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is April 4th, 2016. This is our monthly edition of Faith and Practice, where the listeners uh, basically control the program. Uh, they send in their questions, and Dr. Piper, the president of Greenville Seminary, will answer them. And, and of course, we have some good, uh, friendly back and forth as, as we go. So, um, so we're going to get to that in just a minute. I just want to bring everybody up to speed, uh, what we've been doing. I, a number of guests are lined up for the future, probably into May already. So we have a lot of good topics uh, set for you uh, going forward. Uh, re- don't forget about the GPTS mobile app where we release this podcast and other uh uh, other items like the chapel sermons and um, the spring theology conference, which that that will be released probably in the next thirty to forty-five days for the for the mobile app. So look forward to that and other things. And of course, the confessingourhope.com website, where all of the information about programming as far as the past, uh, current, and what's going to happen in the future. So uh, avail yourself of those resources. Uh, as I mentioned, we're going to be talking with Dr. Piper today, uh, the monthly edition of Faith and Practice, and um, we have a, well, we have so many questions on in the queue right now that we won't get to everything, um, and and mainly that's because uh, because of the Spring Theology Conference, there were a number of questions that were asked by conference attendees that uh, simply ran out of time and couldn't answer, and so we committed to dealing with some of these, if not all of these questions, uh, on this particular program. So. Spread the word uh, about faith and practice. Tell your friends and uh, tweet it, Facebook, all that stuff, and let people know that we are uh, doing these conference questions, and many of them are very, very good. So, Bill, doc- I'm recommending uh, that we do two this month, and we do the next one on Wednesday morning, uh, the 20th. Outstanding. So if you heard him okay, I didn't unmute him until just this second, but we're going to do another faith and practice on April 20th and, and continue to get to these questions. So Dr. Pipe, again, you know, it's great to have you in here. I know we both enjoy doing this particular program and wow, there's some really, some of these questions are really outstanding. So I guess we're going to start with the leftovers from last year. Yes, we're going to start with prayer. Me or you? You. I'll pray. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, the many mercies you show us each day. We, you do not treat us as our sins deserve, but you have forgiven us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this technology and this this means by which we can further explore your word and uh, various topics and issues that uh, we are presented with in your church. Uh, We ask for wisdom. Give Dr. Pipe a a great wisdom as he answers these questions, and may they be helpful and edifying to your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. Ah, got corrected on grammar already. I can't get through a program without it. It's okay, though. It's all for my good. I, I, I've learned that uh, as I've gone forward. Okay, so what we're going to do today is we're going to deal with the leftover questions that were given from the last program, and then we're going to move into some of the questions that were done at the Spring Theology Conference. I think that I have that right. So our first question today <clears throat> comes in from Anonymous, which is okay, by the way. You can write in anonymously. We don't care. Um, but it, there's really two questions here, and the first one is, in what sense was the Old Covenant breakable in which the New Covenant is breakable? Well, the Old Covenant, uh, all those that are in the covenant externally or legally broke the covenant. Uh, and the same is true in the New Covenant. I think the big difference is, is that the New Covenant uh, promises much more outpourings of grace in Jeremiah 31, and thus... The majority of the people in the New Covenant 
it's not just a remnant that's in the in the new covenant. A remnant in the old covenant. Majority of people in the new covenant are in fact uh, regenerate. Uh, a regenerate person cannot break the covenant, but corporately Israel broke the covenant, and that's signified in the prophets when the stick is broken. But the church cannot ever nullify the new covenant, and Christ has promised that the church is forever and upon this rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So the old covenant church broke the covenant and thus the temple was destroyed and that covenant was laid aside in terms of its demands. But it's fulfilled in the new covenant and the new covenant church uh, it cannot break the covenant because the majority of the people in the, in the new covenant church are going to be born again. Mm. <clears throat> and then the second part of the question um, is I guess somewhat related, um, but is asked, Abraham was to circumcise all the males in his household, including slaves. In Acts, we read of household baptism, presumably including wives, children of all ages, and slaves, even if they were not professing faith. Yet the Westminster Standards refer to those who profess the true religion and their children. How do we reconcile these things? You know, that's an uh, interesting question, and we often hear it. The uh, whole thing of slavery, uh, a slave would have been uh, a possession of Abraham. And thus he would have baptized or circumcised them. Uh, they were considered to be a part of his household. Uh, the New Testament is silent if any presence of slaves were in the household. The clear teaching of the New Testament is that it is uh, believers and their seed, or at least one uh, believer, legal, maybe even a legal guardian. If we lived in a day of slavery, uh, it might be a different question to have to wrestle with, but we don't have to wrestle with it. We don't have slaves, uh, and the standards are addressing the culture really as it is. Uh, there really weren't many slaves in England at the time either, if any. So I think that we're on the safest footing to stick to uh, the standards, believers and uh, their seed or children, which is the promise. Um, let it go with that. Okay, very good. Well, thank you for writing in. And um, again, as I mentioned, uh, you know, it, it is okay to write anonymously. We, we don't really care. Um, you don't have to put a name to these things. Um, Just don't get your book if you do that. But that's right. If you do write anonymously, I have really no way to contact you to give you the discount at the Banner of Truth um, store. So just keep that in mind. And you know, if you use your name and you prefer we don't use your name on air, just make reference to that, and I won't. And you'll still get the discount that banner of truth so that would be the best way to do that especially if it's a sensitive issue and we've had those cases in the past all right art fox writes in he's a longtime listener to the program and he wrote in on the facebook page which is another way of contacting us and he asked the question about the title evangelical and he says it's about lost all meaning now what can or should we do about it should we continue to use it stop using it replace it with something else thank you art uh and, and part it's i guess with whom we're speaking. It can be an evangelistic tool. So you might say to a person, when you tell them that you're a 
pastor of an Orthodox Presbyterian Church, you could say we're an evangelical Presbyterian Church. We believe in the Bible as the Word of God and that salvation is through Christ alone. Now, I don't throw in evangelical at that point. I say we're a conservative, Bible-believing uh, Presbyterian Church. Normally, I wouldn't use it. I have not used it for years, in fact. Uh, I think I'm not an evangelical. Just as a Lutheran is not an evangelical, I'm Reformed. And I think that uh, Reformed sums up much better what my commitments are to Christ and the gospel and the Bible and the church, and particularly today with the debasement of the term evangelicals and even with, quote, evangelicals and allowing for homosexuality and homosexual marriage and things like that. So it's not, it's not a term that I like or use. Uh, it probably was worthwhile a long time ago, but I think we're better off talking about ourselves as, uh, as Reformed. Oh, sorry. I got distracted again. It's one of those days. Okay, so uh, our thank you for the question. I, I've wondered that too, um, and I'm glad the way Dr. Piper put it, I, I, I agree. I think I'm Reformed, not, you know, I think that captures evangelicalism, but I am a Reformed Presbyterian Christian. But anyway, all right, another question came in. This from Twitter using uh, hashtag GPTSFP. Another way you can do this um, on Twitter, you can ask the question. You have 140 characters to do it, but uh, if you use the hashtag GPTSFP, which simply stands for what obviously it stands for, um, then I will get that and I will add it to the list of questions. But uh, a listener writes in and he, uh, he or she asks, what do we teach our children about dinosaurs? Are Creation Ministries International Answers in Genesis both good resources? These are kind of two questions. I love this question because I, I love dinosaurs. I love what the book of Job says about dinosaurs and dragons. So in Job 40, you got the behemoth who seems to be a large vegetarian uh, type dinosaur that was very gentle. Mm. And then in chapter 41, you got Leviathan. It's interesting you read that co- old commentators that didn't know anything much about dinosaurs, and the Leviathan was either a whale or a crocodile. But when you read the physical description, uh, it is neither. It is a huge beast. It's a fire breathing beast. So I would say it was a form of dragon. Uh, a, this one would be a sea uh, creature. Uh, but again, exegetically, Leviathan was not a figure that. They're used a number of times in Scripture. They would have been known in the day of Job. And yes, I believe that those two uh, organizations are very useful. They've got some very good material uh, for children uh, with respect to dinosaurs. So I would commend both of those uh, organizations to you. Very good. Thank you for the question, and thank you for using the Twitter way of doing it because it, well, keeps the question short, and it's easier on the program. Now, I think at this point, we're switching to the conference. We'll do my conference questions. You can ask those, and I will throw in if if there's something that's fairly similar from one of the others. Okay, very good. Okay, so the the one I have first, just working through the list, is on the guy or girl discerning whether... Is that the start there? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is a question that came up uh, after or during our Spring Theology Conference, which was on the family. And it's one that, uh, of a series of questions we weren't able to get to because of time. So we're going to deal with these now. Um, and so um, the first one for Dr. Pipe is, how does a guy or girl discern whether or not God is calling them not to pursue marriage? Is it all a matter of burning with lust, or may God call one to overcome such burning for the sake of being more available for other kingdom labors? 
All right. We uh, at the conference established that marriage is God's normal estate, and that, as Christ Himself teaches, some physically incapacitated, others for the sake of the kingdom will remain single. That's a minority calling. It's a calling from God. And so rather than approach it uh, purely in terms of passion, I want to approach singleness in terms of a calling. That a person, uh, I early on, not simply because of a physical drive, but because of a desire to have a wife and children, knew I had a calling uh, to marriage. There can be people who have some um, physical desires, but uh, they have a sense of calling to singleness, either because they would like to serve as a missionary in a very destitute, dangerous place, or they might uh, see their, their role, and, and it can change. John Murray uh, saw his calling to remain single uh, as long as he was actively teaching theology. And so until in his mid-60s, uh, when he left the seminary and moved back to Scotland, he remained single. When he left that work, then he discerned his calling was to be married. So I look at much more in terms of vocation. Yes, um, if in fact one cannot control his or her lust, then uh, by all means uh, they need to use the God-given, and that's how the confession puts it, that one of the purposes of marriage. But if in fact that, yes, there can be a strong physical drive but the person uh, can subdue that because they think they've got a calling. It might be temporary. So, again, this is not a permanent thing. Pray about it. Seek counsel from friends. I would think, and I'm I probably a minority here, but, you know, I think that a man like David Livingston would have been better single because he was never at home. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when, I understand, when I read about a, a married man's responsibilities to his wife and family, I have a hard time uh, justifying that with his lifestyle. Now, I'm not his conscience or his God, but I would say to a young person today, if you wanted to go off as a pioneer and leave your, and you'd feel compelled to leave your family at home for years on end, then your calling is single at that point. Mm-hmm. Now, let's go ahead and put in that next one, Bill. It's a okay. check by it, but it, in a sense, it comes out of this. Do you think people assume the natural desires must somehow be right because they are sincere? So we're getting to the drives again. Um, and, but the question takes in mind adultery or homosexuality, uh, things like that. Um, we, we must not confuse uh, legitimate appetites and sinful appetites. Heterosexual appetites are legitimate. Homosexual appetites are not legitimate. They are a perversion. So we immediately dismiss this idea that, well, I've, I've, I've got this homosexual uh, proclivity, but I'm not going to give in to it. Just as I, if I had heterosexual proclivity, I would have to keep that in the bounds of marriage. No, they're completely different. One is God-given gift. The other is a perversion, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So, But secondly, we never make judgments about ethical decisions on the basis of our desires. We must always be shaped by Scripture. So how does one put to death such desires? Well, if 
as a, as a heterosexual, if I'm looking uh, at another woman uh, and I'm uh, and I'm married and I'm desiring her, I've got to put that to death by exercising the biblical restraints. Um, and it would depend on the situation, how I look at her, where I'm around her, more particularly seeking to uh, focus uh, my attentions on my wife, uh, recognizing that any attraction I have is sinful outside of a uh, friendship that's within safe uh, boundaries. And so you got to put to death uh, sexual desires for other women if you're married, sexual desires for women if you're not married. Um, and so we practice the whole, and we don't have time today to go into mortification. If you want to ask a follow-up question on that, that would be good. Homosexual uh, desires, uh, whereas you don't repent of the desire and heterosexual desire, you repent of the temptation if you give into it. Now, the temptation itself isn't a sin. Whereas homosexuality, the desire is a sin, and thus we need to uh, confess uh, the sin of the desire and uh, ask God to uh, deliver us uh, from that. And I think at that point, you also want to seek good biblical counsel and counselors to deal with it. Well, very good. And that takes care of two of the questions which were related. I think the next one is on God's nursery. That is the lecture you did. I think you preached Wednesday that, night. Yep, it was a sermon. and um, well, Both were sermons, what God's design well, that, and right. God's nursery. That's right. So the question here is um, related to the Wednesday night sermon that Dr. Piper preached at the conference. And the question is, can you please comment on a situation where a father is, quote, provoking to anger, unquote, I know this doesn't change the child's responsibility to honor their father. However, if they are older and more mature, how should it be handled? Okay. This is a reference to uh, what Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, Fathers do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And in the message, I deal with a number of ways that fathers do that, hypocrisy, uh, wrath, ir irrationality, inconsistency, or mothers uh, as well. Um, an older child... In the first place, uh, the child should recognize in God's providence, I am under this mother or father. And God has designed that, and it's for my well-being. So look for what what is God doing for me in this situation? What is God teaching me? See, even in the negative or what we call the dark providences, they're of God, and he's teaching us things. And so you begin with God's put you there. Constantly assert God's uh, sovereignty in this. I preached yesterday two sermons from Job chapter 5. You can get them on sermon audio. Don't fight against God and submit. Uh, and so uh, you, you start there, and then you pray for your father, and it can come to a point where you might need to go to the pastor uh, and uh, say, you know, I've got a problem or you can ask your father to go to the pastor with you. I mean, you should try to talk to your father about this situation. Um, and that might, you know, lead to great reconciliation right there. And if not, say, you know, I really, you know, I recognize I've got a problem here, Dad, and, and I just need to go talk to the pastor about it. So those are some ideas. Mm. It's really a good question and one that's very practical. Um, so good counsel uh, given. 
Now the next question is right below it, so um, it's again on the same subject uh, of the sermon that Dr. Piper preached. He, the question is, yesterday you spoke, and when I say yesterday, that was the day after the conference that he preached it, so it wasn't yesterday, yesterday. But the question is, yesterday you spoke about universal obedience. Would you please clearly define the term and exposit it from Scripture? I think I'll stop there. Yeah, all right. Uh, by that, I'm saying that uh, the parent's authority in the life of, uh, of the child is not simply um, do this and don't do that, but it comes to the important life decisions, uh, vocation, college, marriage, the kind of things that uh, come to mind. So with respect to vocation, it's more that the young p person or young adult needs to consider their parents' counsel. Mm -hmm. They're not bound if dad wants you to be a lawyer and you have no desire to be a lawyer. But if dad says, you know, I think I see these gifts in you, let's test them, let's pray about it, that's very different. Of course, that ties into with where you might go to uh, trade school or university or whatever. Um, again, at that point, uh, they should have the criteria. Uh, my criteria was a good church. Mm. Everything else was kind of down. It didn't have to be a Christian college. They went through Christian school through high school, but at that point, they had worldview. Uh, I want a good church. Uh, but marriage, I think, is probably the thing that is uh, mostly in people's minds. And in the first place, it's up to the parents to tell uh, a child, we don't think you're ready to marry. Men are women. And uh, particularly the young man needs to listen to that. If my parents don't think I'm ready to marry, I do not pursue courtship with anybody mm, until right. they say I'm ready. Again, there's always the out. If parents are being unreasonable, you go to the session and say, you know, I just need further counsel. Um, uh, but second then, uh, a young lady is under her father's headship, and she must have his permission whom she's to marry. And we establish that from Numbers 30, for example, where a woman took a vow in her father's home. The father could disavow that vow, and she had no guilt. When she married, that responsibility transferred to her husband. And he could uh, disavow a vow she took in her father's house as well as one she took in his presence. And so it's a clear, just ties in what we know about male headship in marriage. And so there's a change of headship that takes place. And so a woman, again, is not to marry a man whom her parents say, no, we do not want you to marry him. Again, and I know one situation where the parents had an improper view of, of uh, divorce and remarriage. And the man that she wanted to marry, the session had given her and him permission to marry. And he was divorced biblically, and the father said no. Mm. The session studied the issue and said yes. Uh, and so, you know, that's a very uh, serious thing to do. And it doesn't, shouldn't happen very often, but it can happen. So um, I think that we'll stop there with that. Um, Do you want to deal with the uh, Jesus yeah. wasn't married question? Okay, yeah. so the question goes on, and it's related, but it, uh, the questioner uh, asks, Jesus wasn't married, yet he left his home. How does that fit within universal obedience? I'm glad you asked the question. And he goes on to say there are other examples in Scripture like Jacob and John the Baptist. 
I'm glad you asked the question because I in no way intended to imply that a young man, when it came to the point that his parents said, we think you are ready to go out now on your own and pursue a vocation, uh, that he uh, is to stay at home. Uh, never, that's not part of what I mean by universal obedience. Neither is a young woman. Uh, for example, uh, your daughter could go off to college. She's still under her father's headship. And if he's wise, he's going to contact the local church and mm-hmm. say, my daughter's there, and I'd like you elders to uh, watch after her, please, mm-hmm. for me. So then she's out of university. Maybe she wants to go live in uh, New York City, of all places. Well, What's wrong with New York City? It's New York City. <laughs> but my my dear friend and, and father in the faith can't resist the opportunity. <laughs> you're not from New York City. You're from upstate. I'm from New, New York, York, but it doesn't and matter. Nobody in upstate New York likes New York City. Come on. Well, that's that. Well, that's very true about my dad. We never saw New York until I got until I moved out. <laughs> okay. So anyway, um, so again, it might be I don't want you to live in. The, oh, let's say Chicago, crime capital. Oh, Chicago's a delightful city. But anyway, I don't want you to live there, or there's not a good church there. She has to con- take those things into account. But outside of that, yes, there, and then the same thing. All right, you're still under my authority. I want you to check in regularly and you know, be in this church. And so it's not that, that men and women don't establish their own households, even single. There's a difference between a man who is single, I think, by Scripture, and a woman. Uh, but obviously a woman like Lydia... Uh, now, she wasn't out of the covenant at that point, but she had her business. And we see the, the godly wife was a very experienced uh, entrepreneur. So it's not that you don't move away, but you must move away with your father's permission and not in sense of independence or rebellion. Well, very good. It's a great question. And I, I'm glad Dr. Pepper dealt with that. I have a daughter that lives um, in Virginia. Um, she's not married, but, you know, we've had this conversation. And, you know, yes, she's living outside my home, but still that headship is there. And so we do talk, and it's about some of these things. And it's, it's well, actually, really important I'm, to have I'm that. Deliberately included the next question there without asking it. Please touch on the responsibility of relationship of a father and daughter when the daughter is out of the home, independent financially, et cetera, are getting on an age 25 plus or whatever. I think I've answered that. By, yeah, I think so. You've experienced it. And yep. I did too. We came uh, uh, from California to here. Our daughter had gotten out of covenant to come back home. And then we came here. And she stayed a year. Uh, she could have stayed longer, but she she wanted to come home and, and be here, and she stayed in our home until she got married. Then, not that she, not that it required that, right? Yep, but the the principles of headship still remain regardless right. of whether they're living in your home or not. So, uh, really good question and very practical um, in today's world. Now, I think we're yeah. next page, the one on how is God's promise, right? Okay. So the next question, uh, given again from the conference, is how is God's promise of longevity of life and uh, prosperity prosperity applied to today's believers compared with the Old Testament? For example, if we honor our parents and children, obey parents, do we still inherit the promise of God with longevity of life and prosperity? I think I'll stop there. It's actually two questions. There's actually three Three questions. All right. um, It's a good question. The promise is still in effect because it's now a New Testament promise, isn't it? So Paul 
quotes it, but he also changes it, as I pointed out at the conference, mm-hmm. uh, where in the Old Covenant it was long life in the land, talking about the, uh, the uh, land, which is part of the inheritance. And now the Apostle Paul says that they may have a long life on the earth. So it's Paul who makes this still a relevant promise for the church today. And God does make this general promise of long life and prosperity to children who honor uh, and obey their parents. Now, we must understand, as any of the promises we read, for example, in Proverbs, uh, not to make the mistake that Eliphaz and his friends made and particularize universals. The general moral principle that God normally operates in this fashion. But a man like McShane died in his 30s, Calvin, 55, and yet both of them had greater influence in shorter life than men who've lived much longer. And some babies die in infancy or in the womb, and young children die even of cancer. So, but the general rule is what God sets forth. And now our Shorter Catechism wonderfully helps us understand that when it says that we have these promises of long life and prosperity as long as they are for God's glory and our good. Mm-hmm. So there's the qualifier. So yes, um, there is a greater degree of, of useful life, of longevity, to a faithful covenant person. And there is a greater degree of prosperity, uh, each according to his own gifts and God's appointment and never in a way that would become a temptation to the individual. And this is for the sake of the church, not for individuals. So this is why I would point out in the message that this is part of what God is doing in our families to build the church. So he follows up, how do you suggest the teaching of God's promise to be taught in the local church? Well, I think that we uh, uh, focus on responsibilities, blessings, commandments. I'm not afraid of, of, of the law. I mean, uh, if you look at chapter 19, the confession of faith, the promises with respect to obedience continue. And if we obey in Christ and know it's for Christ's worth and not ours, that God's blessings are uh, of grace and not merit, our merit, but of Christ's merit, we can preach that God is going to bless. Uh, I would recommend to you a sermon by Martin Lloyd-Jones early on in, the, in his ser- Sermons on the Mount series where he talks about <coughs> the role of blessing and reward in the life of a Christian. So we should teach it. Teach it to, for wholesome families and teach it for the well-being of the church. So put it to, together the way Psalm 128 shows the blessing of the family, comes to the family through the church, and the family then is to be a blessing to the church. And how do you address believers who do not have children and singles? Well, the singles... Uh, this is still their promise to them that as long as they've been faithful in their uh, family responsibilities, God is going to bless and use them either in a permanent vocation of singleness or a temporary vocation of singleness. Now, believers who do not have children need to be addressed uh, circumspectly, uh, but at some point, the pastor needs to say, you know, I know this is a personal question, but because of biblical responsibility, um, are, you, are you not having children because of 
of, at this point, God hasn't given you children. That's something we can pray about with mm-hmm. you. You want children? Or have you decided not to have children? Now, that's not an easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I had a, uh, there was a couple in my church in Houston, and they been married a good bit, and there were no children coming along the way. And so I prayed and prayed and prayed about it, and finally determined on the pastoral visit I was going to bring it up. So I prayed about it some more. I get to the house, and uh, I go in for the visit. And uh, Pastor, before you start, I want to tell you something. I'm pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I made it easy. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's how we pray about uh, these things. Now, if they can't have children, we pray with them, and we also incorporate them in both uh, childrenless parents and singles should be incorporated into families. That is the very important one of the very important parts of a, a multi generational church, mm-hmm. and so they are incorporated. When we we were in uh, Philadelphia, when I was doing my doctoral studies, writing for Great Commission, teaching a bit at Westminster Seminary, uh, we had a number of single seminary students in our home to interact with us and our children. Uh, in fact, one of them, uh, Phil Pockris, a pastor in the RPCNA, just posted something on Facebook about those days mm. uh, in our home in Philadelphia. Another woman that was there now is married to a, a PCA pastor in Maryland who got a student from their church in, uh, in the seminary, and and they're, they're good friends. So uh, we, we ought to be incorporating um, uh, widows and divorcees, married people without children and singles into our family circles. It's very important. My mother, when we started going to the church where I was converted, was a young divorcee, and they stuck her into the uh, uh, elderly ladies' uh, Sunday school class, which I don't think you should have anyway, but anyway, they had it. Why not? Well, that didn't help her, and he did it, but women were afraid of her. Well, here's huh. a single woman, and and uh, we, we can't think that way. We've got to help these women become part of our families. Now, we should look for husbands for them as well, if they're biblically divorced or, or if they're widowed. That's part of the church's responsibility as well. Yeah, I, I'm I'm grateful for the church uh, with my daughter in Virginia. She stayed with um, for a while. She stayed with one of the ruling elders' families up there, and uh, so I was very comfortable with the reality that she had a, a godly man, family, husband and wife, uh, watching over her. I, I I can't see her from here, but uh, so it was always just a, a comfort to me that that she was incorporated into the families. As a single young lady, and so, um, so that it, it's a great, a great thing to do. I think we can do this next question. It's the very next page on the eligibility of divorce. I think you can answer this. Yeah, I'm trying to. I was trying to find the one on divorce. I want to do it. With yeah, it's the couple, question is, could you address the eligibility of a divorcee for church office? I want to back up and take the first one, divorce, and okay. do them together. Okay. Outstanding. I'm just trying to find it. Uh, it was a very good question. We're looking. This is radio, not TV. Nothing worse than dead air. I could fill that. I'm sure you can. <laughs> it might not be edifying. Hey. <laughs> I don't see it. I do. Come on. It was very good because of my saying that, um, uh, yeah, here we go. All speakers said that if a divorced person repents, uh, they can remarry. 
What are some scripture references to support this? You said that if the guilty party in divorce repents, that they can remarry as well. You know, we, have, we need to realize on the one hand that divorce is not the unpardonable sin. It's the very last page. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Uh, and divorce is not uh, ad infinitum. I mean, marriage is not ad infinitum. Marriage is a covenant relationship. And a covenant relationship, uh, as the Bible says, can be broken by death, Romans 7. It can be broken by unfaithfulness, which the Bible describes as either uh, sexual unfaithfulness or porneia, which is more than that. It's just unfaithfulness or desertion. And under desertion, there's another number of things that I would follow William Perkins on and include there. So First Corinthians 7 is a place to begin, and, and that's the place that the uh, confession establishes the two principles of uh, sexual immorality or uh, desertion. And Paul says if a non-believer leaves a believer, the believer is free, and I interpret that free means you're free to marry. But it's not the faith or not the faith that makes the marriage. And so it's not that the unbeliever leaves a believer. It's the covenant is broken, in that case, by desertion. And that's the principle that is uh, developed there. And most people recognize then that the person who is uh, biblically divorced has the right to remarry. Now, what made some uncomfortable was that if the guilty party in a divorce repents, they can remarry. And I remember reading this in John Murray, who did not want to say it. Mm-hmm. He said, but I cannot find a scriptural reason to forbid this. So take the scenario that a man commits adultery, his wife divorces him, she remarries. He comes to um, repentance. He makes the proper biblical restitution, which in that case can only be uh, asking forgiveness of wife and if there were children and of the church. Once he's done that, then she's married. He's no longer married to her, and he's showing godliness. Then I believe the session can give him permission to marry. This, I can't find any reason why he cannot, because his spouse is married. Now that was Murray. That was Murray's position as well. Yeah. Wow. He didn't want to say it, but I'm very happy to say it. The email address is. I'm kidding. Wow. We don't use that word on this program. Wow. You can't say wow. No. Why? It's a terribly overused word. Amazing. That's overused too. It's Interesting. Is. How about that? Stimulating. It. it, it all right. Well, let me let me let me follow up on that cuz that, that I have heard a much different position on that. It was a, the I'm man sure you was, have. the man, the man was divorced. Uh, he he's the one who violated the marriage covenant. Um the divorce from the woman's perspective is a biblical divorce. Okay, cuz she was the yeah, she okay. was the harm we got part. You. But he's guilty. Yeah. Okay, he's repented, great. But has he not then uh, there's still consequence to it whether he's repented. So is the consequence not that he... It, That's a biblical consequence. He's not married any longer. And so Murray would say that because the Bible Piper, does just forget it, Murray. Okay, Piper would say <laughs> that just because the, because the Bible doesn't lay that 
that consequence on That's right. the husband, he is free then after. He's committing adultery if he marries and divorces another woman. That's very different. Okay. But if he commits adultery and is divorced and then comes to faith and repentance and cannot be physically restored uh, to the marriage relationship, either the wife thinks it's better not to or mm-hmm. she's married, then uh, where in Scripture does it say that he's, that he's not free to marry? Seems to me, I mean, I'm totally outclassed on the subject, but it's educational. It seems to me, here we go. This is the, what makes this program fun because we get the banter, somebody, banter back and forth across the table. Matthew 19. It does seem to me that in um, when Jesus is teaching on divorce that if the husband is divorced because of his own sin, that he has now forfeited, whether he's repented or not, he has forfeited the right the to words. be married. I'm trying to find the exact verse. Um, it's 19, beginning in verse 3. I'm not going to read the whole sections, but he said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. All coming out of Genesis. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, that's very different. This is man John divorces his wife Sue and marries Francis. That's adultery. That's adultery. Okay. That's clear. So it's it's the, the fact that he dismisses his wife improperly because of his own sin and runs off with another woman. Right. Now it's adultery. Okay. Right. Or if he runs off with the other woman and divorces his wife. The, the, the scenario you established is basically the reverse of that. That the, the husband commits adultery, that the wife divorces him biblically. Cause Even she if he divorces ground. her, it does not matter. He could have divorced her for wrong reasons. And later, we had a student at the seminary who was sent here by his presbytery. As a ruling elder had done that and was remarried. And then was sent to the seminary by his OPC presbytery. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's it's... Marriage is not, uh, if the covenant's broken, and we're talking about a, a, a biblical, you know, a biblical um, remarriage. I'll go a step further so we can really get some response. Uh-oh, here it comes. The man divorces his wife and marries improperly uh, another woman. Now, he's forbidden to go back to his wife by Scripture. Yep, right. Okay? Yep. But he and his Second wife come to repentance and faith in Christ. He then asks forgiveness of his previous wife and children and the church. The church, knowing all of this and knowing his current lifestyle and family, could, and that's the other question in here, could elect him to be an elder or a pastor. Really? Yep. There's that new phone again. For those who are wondering. I don't know how to control it. It's like you. <laughs> See? I've named it Bill Hill. Man, I tell you. <laughs> in a few months, 
two months, Lord willing, I, I won't have to uh, put up with this abuse. Anymore. Oh, I thought we were still doing the podcast. Bill. We are. That's oh, true. Okay. I guess once a month he'll have his opportunity. So anyway, I'll save him up for me. So I've. Uh, so that really addresses the question of the eligibility of a divorcee for church office. But right. I think it doesn't explore it far enough. Okay. Your answer, because um, they're saying divorcee, but they're not qualifying it. You just qualified it under one circumstance. But what if the, the, it was an unbiblical divorce? He obviously he comes. He's in the church. Um, what, what, what scenario would be, um, pertinent that would eliminate a man who was divorced from church office? Failure to repent and have a godly lifestyle. So even if it was on biblical divorce, if he repents, has a godly lifestyle. Wow. Well, hmm. It's very interesting. He could be on home. There's that wow. He doesn't like. Program. He doesn't like wow. I'm sorry. I just have to ex- extricate it from my vocabulary. Well, it's it is a very. I, I think as an elder and and in sessions they wrestle with these things because this is a very sticky, very very difficult issue. It requires a lot. I think wisdom, obviously, in dealing with things. And I think both Dr. Pipe and I would say that in these circumstances you need your session very closely working with you oh, yeah. um and and don't run off and divorce your spouse just because you talk to your session you get you need help from them in in these matters well, no, i think even if one spouse has been uh, guilty um there's room for repentance and i don't go as far as some biblical counselors and say that if the the innocent party has not remarried and if the guilty party asks forgiveness, the innocent party must either not divorce them or remarry them. I don't think the, that forgiveness and reconciliation require the establishment, again, of the covenant. I think it's wise, and I would always encourage it. God hates divorce. Right. But um, I don't think I have the right to lord over somebody's conscience. So that would be the direction I'm going. But I think you would agree that, that as elders in the church— Divorce is absolutely the last resort. Yeah, it should be. And I think our confession even says, you know, it's... probably for a broader interpretation of desertion and sexual immorality than some people. Yep. Which the Puritans, for the most part, went in a broader way. Yep. But that would be a question of the day. I do want to do this one, Bill, because it is a burning issue. It's what the conference was greatly about. And that is... um, some who seek to redefine God's created order. Turn to Leviticus 18, 19-23. Now, God's created order is that, all right, it's okay in the New Testament to uh, have um, faithful, monogamous homosexuality. And so those who are seeking to establish that refer to Leviticus chapter 18, which says that sex and marriage during the wife's period is equivalent, I'm glad we're doing radio and not television, equivalent to sodomy and adultery in God's eyes. So uh, Leviticus 18, 19 through 23. Also, you shall not approach a woman to uncover her nakedness during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife. That's the first thing the person missed. Um, you shall not give any of, of your offspring to offer them to Moloch. So, um, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It seems to me that what Leviticus 18 is addressing is having an adulterous relationship during uh, 
the menstrual cycle so as there would be no uh, possibility of pregnancy. That's what he's dealing with. You notice the language. Not approach a woman. It's not your wife. Approach a woman to uncover her nakedness, to have sexual relations during her menstrual impurity. You shall not have intercourse with your neighbor's wife to be defiled with her. Now, it was a ceremonial law not to have relations during uh, menstrual period because under the ceremonial law, any type of bodily emission made one ceremonially yeah, unclean. unclean. Even regular sexual relations or seminal emissions during the night or whatever, uh, all of these things made one, as would an ulcerated sore, made one ceremonially unclean. So you've got two different laws. To be ceremonially unclean is not to commit adultery. But it would keep you one day from uh, going to the temple. Uh, whereas the um, principle with respect to homosexuality uh, is a moral law. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It's an abomination. You shall not have intercourse with an animal to be defiled with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is a perversion. So these are perversions. These are abominations. These are not things that make you ceremonially unclean. These are um, biblical perversions contrary to God's creation ordinance where he made one man and one woman mm -hmm. and instituted uh, the sexual relationship and procreation uh, tied into that relationship. And of course, it's physically impossible either in bestiality or homosexuality uh, to produce. So what you have to realize is that in uh, in Leviticus 18 and 19 in particular, you've got all three laws interspersed. You've got positive laws, judicial laws, and moral laws. Because all of the different types of laws are still the application of the Ten Commandments. And so there's some ceremonial applications of the Sixth Commandment or the Seventh Commandment. There are judicial applications uh, of that commandment with respect to death penalty. And there are moral applications. And so when you read a chapter like this, you have to uh, distinguish. Very good question. And uh, I do have a follow-up from someone who's listening live. Um, it kind of backs up to what we were talking about as far as the divorced person uh, eligible for office. And, and the listener wants to know whether a divorced man is eligible for the pastorate or even preaching pulpit supply. Now that's a very broad question. Uh, yes, definitely, if a man is is has been divorced biblically. You would probably be surprised if I told you some of America's most loved Reformed preachers uh, who have been uh, divorced. Their wives have testified that um, you know, the husband was not at fault in this, that he's a godly man. Um, and so um, divorce surely doesn't prohibit that. We need to we go to 1 Timothy 3, the husband of one wife. You must get the context uh, for this. This has nothing to do with divorce. This is a missionary principle that we would still apply today. When the gospel would come into many of these areas, uh, people would be practicing polygamy. And what Paul is saying is that an elder cannot be a polygamist. But Paul would never tell a, a man to put away one of his wives. He according to the scripture now, has a responsibility conjugally 
uh, in terms of, of food and shelter to care for his wives. So the gospel doesn't tell a man, put away your wives, get rid of your children. Uh, but the gospel says, if you have that situation, you may not uh, be an elder. So it's not divorce at all. Because a man that's properly divorced doesn't have another wife. Mm-hmm. So if he's properly divorced and he has married, he has one wife. So that's, that's the first thing. So divorce does not keep a man out of the pulpit. It does not keep a man out of the uh, eldership or out of the diaconate. But I would go the step further, as I did, and say that even an uh, unbiblical divorce does not in and of itself keep a man out of the ministry. He has to prove himself after his repentance and restitution. And whoever would call him would need to know that situation. But uh, just don't make divorce more evil than it, than it actually is. Very good. Thank you for the question, uh, yes, live listener. Glad you're listening. Um, we have about eight minutes left, Dr. Pipe. I, I do. I think I'd like to ask this question. It wasn't really addressed to anybody, but it's on the sin of porn, mm-hmm. and it's related to divorce as well. So right. it continues the same subject that we're dealing with. So the question is, since the sin of porn is not biblical grounds for divorce, how do you counsel the couple to maintain the marriage and forgive of her husband. It's, okay, it's well, the first husband place, or wife. We, you know, right. I, I realize that we, you know, Changing. you know, in our world that you know the sin of porn is mostly men are mostly infected by this 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 grievous. Thirty percent now of women. Though, yeah, but saying. now with soft porn and these romantic novels and all these things well, are going hardcore on. Hardcore porn on computer. Thirty percent yep. women. Yep. Well, and first, I, I cannot concede your uh, simply your antecedent since the sin of porn is not biblical grounds for divorce right i'm not going to uh to answer to take that you've kind of locked me into uh, a a bit of a circle that i don't want to get into i think that if it's dealt with properly and biblically and the party remains impenitent it is biblical grounds for divorce and let me explain to you how this would work out so we'll say that Mary discovers John is, is addicted to hardcore uh, pornography on the computer. They're both members in good standing in the uh, corner Presbyterian Church, which is either PC or OPC. It's not a liberal church. Okay. So uh, she confronts John, and uh, they go together to the pastor. And John says, yes, I've been doing this for five years. And... The pastor says, well, John, you know it's a sin, and we want you to submit to counseling, and uh, let's deal with this. And uh, John says yes, but John has no intention of either submitting to counseling or dealing with it. John loves it. He doesn't love his wife any longer. She can't produce for him. Or I knew a case in Texas where the man was trying to get his wife to replicate what he was seeing. Oh, my. And this is so evil. And I, I count the session to ask my counselor, and I, I concurred. He knew that in the past she had a drinking problem. I knew her when she was a teenager. She was at a conference where I was a teacher, delightful young lady, had a drinking problem. He deliberately tried to get her drunk so she would do the things. So he was breaking the seventh commandment yeah. by uh, trying to bring her back in danger. Uh, and uh, or the sixth commandment, and then the seventh commandment by trying to get this. So, uh, so the man has no intention of repenting, or he keeps saying he repents, but he doesn't. 
then I would say after a period of time, what the church does is, is excommunicate him. Mm-hmm. And then they say uh, to her, um, we think you're free to divorce this man because of his sexual habits, his uncleanness. Because, you know, the Bible says don't look on the nakedness of another woman. That is what he's doing. Uh, and so now I, I know I have friends that won't go that far. But this goes through a long time of counseling, uh, the slow steps of church discipline. But at the end of the day, you're saying this man is uh, impenitent. Uh, he's, he gives no evidence of being in Christ, and he is ruining um, his wife by his sexual practices. Uh, he has put other women in front of her, are men and women. So that's how I approach it. But uh, again, there's wisdom, multitude of counselors, and I think that elders uh, can go in through this carefully, um, give that woman permission to divorce that man. Well, it's a good question, and, and um, yeah, it's a real evil out there. Do not be naive as to what's going on. I don't know where to go from here. We have like three and a half minutes left. We can't do the... Well, we could do this long question, I guess. I could summarize it and okay. answer it. If you or, give me an idea where you are. Let's just do uh, oh, page sure. three, Abraham's question. Okay. Are you back to the write-in ones? Okay, I've got you. About baptisms and the one, oneness Pentecostal okay. church. All right. So Abraham writes in from um, Idaho. And it's on baptism, oneness, Pentecostal issues. He says, when I was 12 years old, my parents were evangelized by a minister of a oneness Pentecostal church. In spite of their anti-Trinitarian doctrine, the Lord graciously saved me after hearing the gospel in that church context. I was baptized by one of its ministers. However, to this day, I've been uncomfortable with the fact that the baptismal formula, uh, I don't know what AAQ means, but the baptismal formula um, in Jesus' name. My question is whether this would be considered an invalid baptism and need to be baptized. Thank you, Abraham. Yes, I think it is not a genuine biblical baptism. In the Jesus' name only baptism, you've got a Trinitarian church, non-Trinitarian church does not accept Jesus as uh, the eternal Son of God, but baptizes only in his name. They are a cult. Um, they're not a Christian church. And so I would encourage you to go to your pastors and discuss this and uh, and seek baptism. Well, very good. And, and thank you for writing in. And, and as we wrap up... Let me just say, Bill, I really appreciate people sharing the pastoral things. Yeah, that's what we're really about here is not yep. dead in and abstract theology, but what we call experiential Calvinism where the Bible meets the road of real life. And, and I just love it when our listeners, and we get so many... Not just the conference, but the uh, the written questions that come in through Twitter, Facebook, and, and the blog. They're great, and we yeah. appreciate you entrusting those to us. But let me also just say that um, if you are in uh, a, a good Reformed church, don't take my word as the end answer, but uh, pray over that, but also consult with your pastor. Absolutely. Wise counsel, and uh, again, I echo what Dr. Piper said. It's very easy to write in. Um, if you do have questions and you want to write into the program, uh, you can go to confessingourhope.com and fill out that form. It says Faith and Practice Questions. It's a tab at the top. Just click on that and write into your heart's content. 
there's no limit. You know, just go nuts and send it to us, and uh, we will consider it and deal with it um, if it's appropriate um, on the program. If you do that, then uh, we will contact you after it's publicly released, um, and you'll receive a $10 coupon code to the Banner of Truth um, store. So it's beneficial. To, uh, you'll get good books and good things to read and uh, good good answers from your questions. You can do it through Twitter and Facebook um, as well. Um, there's a number of ways to do that. So utilize those, those different sources, sir. All right, four heads up. April 20th, we'll do another live broadcast, Wednesday morning. What time? 9.15. 9.15. Is that good for our hearers? If you don't like 9.15 and you listen live, let us know what time between uh, 9.15 and 10. Uh, we can do any time between 9.15 and 10. Second one, ministers, elders, ministerial students. We really encourage you to attend the Banner of Truth uh, uh, Pastor Men's Conference in Pennsylvania. Go to their website, get the brochure. The lineup of speakers this year is excellent, and it will be a very good time. And the book discounts, particularly if you write in a few questions, you get their book discounts plus this discount. Yeah. You can walk away with a wheelbarrow full of books. Third and fourth together, start marking your calendars now. Our summer institute uh, for men in the church is Chad Van Dixhorn, who is one of the leading experts now in the Westminster Assembly and Confession and Catechism. Uh, is going to be uh, teaching uh, the first full week of August on the Westminster Standards and Pastoral Care. Few people have ever looked at the Westminster Standards in terms of pastoral care. The week after that is our kind of every third or so year uh, special lectures in uh, Presbyterian, Southern Presbyterian theology. Not the most popular group of people today, but it's great theology. Dr. Wilborn is teaching this course. It's a vacation course as well. He takes you down uh, to the Low Country, Columbia, and Charleston for historical tours part of It's a great course. tour. And so get those things on your calendar. Come for one or both and in, enjoy us here and with us as well in uh, beautiful Greenville, South Carolina. If you want to have more information about those items that Dr. Pepper just mentioned, go to the website. It's gpts.edu. It's right there. You can register. You can sign up. You can get information. And I would also uh, echo what he said about the Banner Conference. It's a fantastic conference. I have been blessed every year I've gone. Um, and so um, go. It, it, it's, it's, it's just a great time of fellowship, great food. It's just, it's just a good, great conference. Um, so... Anyway, coming up on the program, go to the website. Um, I'm a little confused, and that's my fault, not my helper's fault on this subject. Um, I, I've been behind in getting things out, uh, as many have probably noticed. In fact, I had a listener contact me just the other day and said, where's the next pro confessing our hope? I said, I'm underwater, so it's late. But anyway, go to the website. You'll see what's coming up, the lineup. And if you want to catch up on past programs, they're all there listed. You can listen listen online, listen through iTunes, listen on the app, wherever uh, it's there, it's available. So until next time, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless. Mm -hmm.